Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hello and welcome to our latest installment of the Legal Face Off podcast here on WGN Radio. It is our Supreme Court Legal Face-Off podcast. And we start, as always, with our two hosts, Tina Martini of McDermott, Will & Emery. Tina, great to see you, as always. Great to see you, too, Joe. Along with Rich Lenkoff of Downey & Lenkoff. Rich, how's it going? Hey, Joe. We start with the Supreme Court and the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Our two esteemed guests today, we welcome in Michigan State sociology professor Carla Pfeffer. She received her PhD in sociology from the University of Michigan. Professor, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm actually a social work professor at MSU. Perfect. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, along with Professor Nicole Huberfeld of Health Law, Ethics, and Human Rights at the School of Public Health and the School of Law at Boston University, please keep an eye out for her piece called The Conversation with Linda McLean. Professor, thanks very much for joining us as well. Pleasure to be here again. Thank you for having me. Professor Huberfeld, we heard from the same justices who wrote in the majority to overturn Roe. We heard from them in their confirmation hearings before the Senate uh, at least the last three, that they uh, respected Roe v. Wade as almost super precedent. What happened? What happened to stare decisis? Great question. So I think it's important to note that Justice Alito has had a project of overturning Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey since he became a lawyer, basically. Uh, when he was a judge on the Third Circuit, he was the one judge who would have allowed Pennsylvania to have spousal notification laws and its abortion regulations. So when he became the justice who took Justice O'Connor's seat on the Supreme Court, it was quite clear where he stood. This was basically his dream opinion. And so I think it's important to note that what has happened here is that the Supreme Court has decided that the right to privacy no longer protects the right to access abortion. This means that it is turned back to the states and or to the federal government. The federal government is not prohibited from acting here. And so what happened in terms of the justices is that frankly, the confirmation hearings have become political theater. And there was an opportunity here for the justices to get together on one decision, which was overturning Rowan Casey. The way that they got there actually involves a couple of concurrences that I think are notable, and we can talk about them now or later. It's up to you. But at the end of the day, I don't think you can really say that the confirmation hearings tell you everything that you need to know. So, Professor Pfeffer, as as we know, now abortion and the legality of it is left up to the states. And... We're looking squarely at numerous states that are essentially immediately going to make abortion illegal. What? Who are the folks who are most likely to be impacted by this decision? And what is that impact likely to look like? 
this decision absolutely will not outlaw abortion. Abortions will still continue. Abortions will no longer be legal in some states, which means that some folks may need to travel across state lines. So we can expect interstate travel to increase. We can expect travel tourism to increase uh, to states and possibly even countries that do have um, more human rights-based abortion laws. Um, we can expect that the folks that will be most impact, impacted by this law are those that are least able to engage in those sorts of travel practices. So those who are poor, um, youth, especially queer youth of color. We know that queer youth of color um, tend to be disproportionately represented among those who find themselves um, facing unwanted or unexpected pregnancies. And so we know that members of these groups will be disproportionately affected. They're also disproportionately likely to be poor. Um, so having this in place is just going to kind of create structural barriers for accessing safe and legal abortion. Um, it will not outlaw abortion in any context. Professor Huberfeld, picking up on that point, you expect, we've already heard, for example, from some governors who are intent on following the letter of the law, um, who have indicated uh, that they are going to enforce the law not only against doctors who might perform abortions in contravention of state law, but to people who, for example, receive abortion pills in the mail or who travel across state lines. Do we expect that this decision will then lead to the criminal prosecution of people seeking abortions in the other ways that Professor Pfeffer mentioned? This is a really complicated question because it very much depends on the particular action that is being either civilly or criminally prohibited. In other words, as Professor Pfeffer mentioned, just because abortion is unlawful in some places doesn't mean people will stop seeking abortions. This is true both in the U.S. and globally, that there are as many abortions in places where abortion is outlawed as where it is legal. And there was actually a recent publication in The Lancet that you can read there. And so when it comes to the question of what states can do to limit access to abortion, they can certainly limit access to abortion within their own borders. And usually the way that states do that is prohibiting physicians from providing abortions and they don't allow other healthcare providers to provide abortions. What they cannot do is stop people from crossing state lines. There's actually a constitutional right to travel. Justice Kavanaugh mentioned this in his concurrence that the states can't stop people from traveling for whatever reason. And I would mention that they can't stop physicians in other states from practicing medicine. They don't have any power over physicians in other states. When it comes to medication abortion, which is the number one way that people actually have an abortion in the United States as of 2020, it's more complicated. The pills have been approved by the FDA. This means that states cannot outlaw the pills themselves because states can't contradict the FDA in that way. But states can forbid abortion and they can forbid healthcare providers from providing abortions. Can they stop pills from being mailed? That's a much harder thing to do. People who are running businesses that are telehealth businesses that provide medication abortion are not going to set up shop in states that forbid abortion. They're going to set up shop in states that protect abortion, like Massachusetts or Connecticut or California, or in other countries. States that want to prohibit abortion can't really reach them. And it's much harder to stop one or two little pills in the mail than you might think. Or maybe you do think it's hard. <laughs> and so it's going to be tricky, I think, for states to try to impact medication abortion. 
but they do have power over physicians providing telehealth services in their states. And that is going to be a bigger question going forward, I think. So Professor Pfeffer, picking up on what Professor Huberfeld was just talking about, with regard to potential liability and the path forward for healthcare providers and doctors, as well as employers and insurance insurance providers, how do you navigate this very difficult landscape, particularly as an insurance provider and as an employer who up until now has not had to make difficult decisions and has not had such a difficult landscape to navigate? You know, I have a lot of concerns um, about the concurrences, uh, as Professor Huberfeld mentioned earlier. And I think that one of the areas that I have concerns about is in Justice Thomas's notes that he believes that a number of Supreme Court precedents need to be reexamined. One of those uh, focusing on the right to contraception itself and thinking about how these medications may be construed as contraception. If some of these precedents are revisited, I think it's not beyond the scope of possibility that the Supreme Court could be looking to overturn even access to contraception, um, given some of what we're seeing, uh, some really troubling things that we're seeing in the concurrences. Um, As for how this is going to impact employers now, how it will affect insurance companies, I think that we do see some companies already engaging in stopgap measures to make sure that their employees maintain access to safe and legal reproductive productive health. Some of these companies are doing this by basically saying that they will subsidize travel and accommodations um, for anyone in their company who wishes to um, make use of their reproductive rights access. Um, And that is, you know, something that is so necessary that we see companies engaging in these sorts of supports for their employees, especially employees um, who have least uh, kind of recourse to being able to afford travel and being able to afford abortion services out of state on their own. Professor Huberfeld, last question, unfortunately, that we have time for. Um, fascinating insight from both of you, but Professor Pfeffer touched on this issue. How are we, how are we supposed to reconcile these uh, two different opinions in the majority? Alito went to great lengths, we think, to explain that other rights are not going to be affected by this, that this is unique because it deals with um, the you know life of an unborn child. Yet Clarence Thomas, in a very you know chilling uh, descent to many, said, no, that's not the case. We do think, I do think, that we should reopen these other well-established rights under the right to privacy, things like the right to same-sex marriage, the right to um, you know contraception. And who's to say that the right to contraception doesn't involve the life of an unborn child if you are to believe that that life begins at fertilization. So, you know, it seems like it's a very confusing opinion on that regard and one that's very frightening, you know, to many. Well, can you comment on that? So the important thing to note there, I think, is that Justice Thomas stands alone in his concurrence. He's the only justice who is saying we should overrule the right to privacy writ large. Now, he has held this view for years. He's both written it in concurrences and dissents, and he stated it at cocktail parties. So he's made no bones about this viewpoint. However, none of the other justices appear to agree with them. On the other hand, this opinion does create an inflection point 
because the right to privacy protects a web of rights of which abortion is just one thread. And so it would be naive to believe that other rights are not also jeopardized by the logic of this opinion, that the right to privacy must be rooted in history and tradition. The point in time at which the court is looking was a point in time where women and people of color were not treated as people under the law. And so that's where I'm concerned about what might happen with other rights protected by the right to privacy. Again, that's Boston University's Professor Nicole Huberfeld. Keep an eye out for her piece, The Conversation with Linda McLean. Also received great insight from Michigan State social worker, Professor Carla Pfeffer. Thank you both so much for the insight today. Thank you. Thank you. back to the Legal Faceoff podcast. Now moving on to the topic of the latest in the Supreme Court. We've got an internationally recognized scholar of constitutional law and corporate governance. He's Professor Kent Greenfield from Boston College. Professor, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Along with Professor Stephen Wormiel at American University Washington College of Law, also a member of the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and the House of Delegates. Professor Wormiel, thank you for being here as well. Glad to be here. So uh, today, the Supreme Court, uh, in a much anticipated case, ruled uh, in a 6-3 decision that a Washington state school district violated the First Amendment rights of a high school football coach when he lost his job after praying at the 50-yard line. Um, This is Joe Kennedy. The court ruled that his prayers amounted to private speech, which were protected by the First Amendment, and Professor Wormiel, it's very interesting that Neil Gorsuch wrote in the majority. He said the Constitution and the best of our traditions counsel mutual respect and tolerance, not censorship and suppression for religious and non-religious views alike. Uh, what are your thoughts on this decision? Well, this decision is part of a pattern in the last few years of the court increasing the, the protection for individual prayer for recognition of religion in the public public square and and diminishing um, significantly the other part of the religion clauses the establishment clause which had been read to kind of separate church and state in in, in the public sphere and the court is really moving dramatically in the other direction to to allow much more religion in in public situations and more religious speech Professor Greenfield, this decision has to be read um, or understood in concert with a decision last week where the court said that a uh, that Maine could not exclude religious schools from tuition assistance programs. That was also a six three decision. Um, Again, uh, you know, came down through ideological lines. What are your thoughts on that decision as it relates to the makeup of the court currently? Yeah, I think Steve is absolutely right in this because, the, you know, the religion clauses, there's two competing uh, principles there. One is anti-establishment. The, the Constitution says the government cannot, establishment, uh, cannot establish a religion. On the other hand, it protects the free exercise of religion. And I think this Roberts Court is sort of whittling down the protections of the establishment clause, sort of tearing down 
the wall of separation between church and state, and in its place, rebuilding and 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 reestablishing a much more robust exercise clause, so that um, and is, the court is being very attentive to claims of discrimination. For example, of like this coach who was praying, who was who was punished for praying in a public space with his, with his um, with the, the children that he that he coached, and last week's the claim of, of people who said that they had a right to um, have access to state funding of their religious schools. So turning now to New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, last week in a 6-3 ruling, the Supreme Court struck down a century-old New York law that required people who wanted to carry a concealed handgun in public to demonstrate a need to do so. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote for the majority that the law prevented law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their right to keep and bear arms in public. This decision in effect says the Constitution guarantees the right to carry a firearm outside the home. Um, And on Saturday, against the backdrop of that Supreme Court case, President Biden signed into law the first major gun safety legislation passed by Congress in nearly 30 years. Professor Greenfield, turning to you first, what does the Bruin decision mean, particularly now against the backdrop of the new federal gun legislation that was just passed into law this weekend? Yeah, well, Bruin is is the is the most expansive statement of gun rights that the court has ever issued. It went further uh, than the, the the decision of Heller uh, so, some years ago that recognized individual right to uh, bear arms. Now that right to bear arms extends outside of of the house and. Um, the home, and really it struck down uh, the laws in New York, California, New Jersey, Massachusetts, that allow uh, there to be uh, a permitting system that requires people to say, look, I've got a special need to carry this weapon outside the home. The court said uh, requiring people to have that kind of special need is not consistent with the Second Amendment. So this is a big expansion. And, and I think it's also important to compare to the to the the, um, the efforts to regulate guns at a federal level, because what Bruin said is that these laws that are, uh, that once they come on the books, they have to be compared to laws that existed at the time of the framing over 200 years ago. And if they are akin to laws that existed then, they'll survive. But if they're if they're not, if they're innovative, or if they're more responsive to um, to more current needs and dangers, then they're likely to be struck down. Professor Wormiel, do you care to comment? Yeah, I think Kent is absolutely right, and and Bruin more than than I think any opinion I can remember makes me want to kind of imagine myself standing on a colonial street corner, uh, you know, believing that the authors of the Second Amendment uh, didn't distinguish between whether the weapons were in the home or the weapons were out on the street or what your reason was for having the weapon. Clarence Thomas basically put us back in a, you know, in a colonial serial. Uh, if, it, if it wasn't true in, in, in 1789, then it can't be true today. Professors, we got to pick up on on that case as it relates to Dobbs. Obviously, we just discussed Dobbs and we're trying to, you know, discuss some other cases that the Supreme Court uh, is dealing with this term. But it's hard to talk about um, Bruin without discussing Dobbs, because on the one hand, perhaps it's a simplistic way of looking at it. But the Supreme Court said in the Bruin case, let's um, 
you know, not let the state decide. In this case, let's this Constitution trumps New York's ability to regulate the Second Amendment. On the other hand, in the Dobbs case, they seem to be saying the opposite is true. Let's leave it up to the state. So, of course, those who are uh, opponents of the Dobbs decision are pointing to what they perceive as hypocrisy by the highest court of land saying, which is it? Should we trust the states or shouldn't we? What are your thoughts on that? Professor Greenfield first. Well, I think that's that's a that's an apt criticism, right? That this court, uh, the more conservative elements of this court have have often uh, looked to the rights of the states in a bunch of cases, but of course um, they they did not do so in Bruin. And I think the uh, you know there's there's a larger uh, issue here, which is I think that this the supermajority that the court now has. Um, uh, the, the super uh, majority of uh, of conservative justices here on the court. I think they're they're ambitious, they're they're aggressive, and I think they are impatient. I mean, this is the first term that all six of them have been together for the entire term, and we're seeing um, how broad of of an agenda they have. And I, I think that we're only um, seeing the very early stages of this of this impatient, uh, ambitious agenda. Professor Wormio, what are your thoughts on on the uh, dichotomy of these two important cases? Uh, let me take that last Ken's last point, which I think is a very important point. You know, one of the the thrusts of Chief Justice Roberts' separate opinion in Dobbs was, "We don't need to do this. Um, there's no reason for for the court to reach." overruling Roe versus Wade, the court could perfectly well have upheld the Mississippi law. And that's what Roberts proposed there. Um, so I think the impatience, you know, the, the Roberts doesn't want to seem like the court is on a conservative juggernaut. And, and I think that the rest of the conservative majority isn't as concerned with that. And so Bruin and, and Dobbs, I think, are both examples of that. Just picking up on that, has Roberts lost control of the court, right? I mean, this has been the Roberts courts for Roberts courts for a while. Uh, to your point, he descended in Dobbs and would prefer would have preferred to take a more moderate approach. But that decision, along with many others, including today's decision, seems to show that the court is heavily tilting towards the ideological conservative uh, wing versus more of a moderate uh, centrist uh, position. I mean, he's still in the majority 96% of the time. Um, and, and you know, Dobbs maybe is sort of the one um, outstanding example where, where he went dramatically in a different direction. You know, I don't know that the chief justice for whom the court is named has to be in control of the, of the court. But, but um, maybe Kent's got a different view. Well, you're certainly correct that that Justice, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts is, is is an intensely conservative person, but compared to Alito and Thomas and and Gorsuch, he's he's not anymore. And I think uh, and I, I reminded of the the SB8 decision that came out back in back in December, where it, it upheld the um, the efforts of Texas to restrict. Um, the, uh, 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 that, that created a bounty system for for private parties um, to sue others who had, who had had an abortion or who had performed an abortion, and Roberts was in the was in the dissent there too. So I think it is correct that he's 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 not in control of this uber uh, conservative faction, and, it's, and it strikes me that there's that has sort of a two uh, it's a two headed um, um, uh, faction, and that and those two heads are Alito and Thomas. 
Last question here on legal face-off. Obviously, when the Supreme Court leak happened for Dobbs in May, we were laser-focused on trying to figure out what happened. Now that the Dobbs decision has has come down, what is the status of the investigation and has our focus on it really shifted away from really finding out what happened, given that we know what the answer and what the decision is at this point? Professor Greenfield, would you like to take this one? Yeah, you know, it's, it's unclear. You know, we, we are not privy to those inside um, workings of the court. You know, the, it was clear that Chief, Chief Justice John Roberts was intensely bothered and troubled by the leak. And, and there's some investigations going on. What what struck me about the, the final opinion that was released on Friday, it's very close to what the leaked opinion um, uh, appeared to be back in back in May. And so there was some small tweaks, but not not many. Um, so there may be the, the the energy behind that investigation may have been deflated over uh, since the release of the of the opinion on Friday. Again, that's Professor Kent Greenfield from Boston College, along with Professor Stephen Wormiel and American University Washington College of Law. Professors, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Welcome back to the Legal Face-Off podcast as we move into the topic of immigration law. We have clinical professor Hamith Gundavaram joined with us, also co-founder and director of Immigrant Justice Clinic at Northeastern University. Professor, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. So, Professor, over the past two weeks, the Supreme Court has ruled twice against detained immigrants. And there's a third case, Biden v. Texas, which will be ruled on this week. The first case, Johnson versus Artiega Martinez, was filed by a Mexican citizen who had repeatedly entered the U.S. unlawfully and had been living in the U.S. for six years when ICE issued a warrant for his arrest. Can you please tell us more about this case and what the court's reasoning was for finding that a bond hearing was not required in this instance? Sure. So, you know, I think what's a lot of people when they read a case like this, one of the things I think they're not thinking about is that the detainee is not even asking for release. The detainee is just asking for a short hearing. And I've done these hearings. They can be as short as 15 minutes or 30 minutes. Um, So he's asking for a 15 to 30 minute hearing to determine if he is a danger to the community or a flight risk. And if not, that he should be released. Um, So to sort of not give someone that in this sort of very, very long period of time, months and months in detention in the criminal justice system, that would happen within 24 hours. Right. You get a bail hearing 
Whereas in the immigration context, you don't get really anything at all. Um, no guarantees of a bond hearing. So what, what's the significance of this, uh, of this ruling, you think, Professor? I think that it allows the government to uh, essentially in, uh, indefinitely keep someone in detention um, merely because they have a pending claim. So this, uh, this person, uh, Ortega Martinez, um, had applied for withholding of removal, which basically said that he would get uh, become persecuted or be persecuted in his home country of Mexico if he was returned. The problem we're having in immigration in general is everything is backlogged so far that your hearing for withholding to kind of determine whether you're going to be persecuted could take years. And the government's saying in those years, we can continue to detain you and not even have a hearing to determine if release temporarily is proper. So this, the case was, the Johnson case was decided against the backdrop of the 2001 case, the Zadvi, I think it's Zadvi, the Zadvidas case. Sorry, yeah, I'm going to yep. say that over again. It's Zadvidas, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, Zadvidas. Okay. Yeah. So this case was decided against the backdrop of the Supreme Court decision in Zadvidas from 2001, where the court held that immigrants can't be detained by the government indefinitely. How do you reconcile that decision with this one? And yeah. what are your thoughts with regard to Justice Thomas's comment that the Zadvidas case should be overruled? Yeah, I mean, I think they're on a rampage to overrule a lot of cases that they didn't feel like were um, properly decided and ones that are now longstanding precedent. Some longstanding, some, some shorter. Um, so first I want to point out that the prolonged detention under Zadvidas is six months. So I, I think sometimes we throw these numbers out without thinking about a person being in detention for six months without being able to work, without being able to see their family regularly, without being able to prepare their case is horrific, right? So that's already allowed six months. And the difference here is that the uh, they were arguing, the court was arguing essentially that um, because there's a pending relief, some sort of claim um, that Sedvitas doesn't apply because there's not, it's not indefinite. If you have some sort of relief, you're ultimately going to get in terms of a decision. Professor, talk to us also about the Remain in Mexico uh, case and what yeah. that policy means and what we could expect from the very conservative Supreme Court on this issue. You know, uh, it's uh, it's so hard with these cases because you read them and you're so sure it's going to come out one way. And then you think, well, all right, but I forgot who was on the court for a second. Right. Because um, in case after case after case throughout our history, the president of the United States has very broad authority over who is allowed to enter the United States and over foreign relations with other countries. It was even, you know, I think a lot of people forget that the Muslim ban, the first one was struck down, but ultimately the third one was allowed. And it was allowed because the president can determine who can come in and out of the country um, and can determine their relations with other countries. So the scary part about this case is that when it sort of suits this court, if it comes out what I would think the wrong way is if it's when it suits this court, the president has as much authority as they want when it doesn't suit them and when it's a liberal or more progressive president, that the president doesn't have the power to determine who their border and who comes in and out of the country. Yeah. Do you see that as just I mean, we just talked to some other guests about the 
you know, hypocrisy that many are criticizing this court from practicing in terms of, you know, being in favor of states' rights on some uh, cases, like with abortion, for example, and not being a fan of states' rights when dealing with the Second Amendment. Uh, do you feel that this is an example of sort of picking and choosing uh, how you apply certain tenets of the Constitution based on uh, perhaps the party that appointed you to your, your, your Supreme Court seat? I think so. I mean, we don't know how this case is going to come out. So it could come out um, that uh, the Remain in Mexico policy can be disbanded. And then, uh, you know, that wouldn't necessarily change my opinion about what you said, but it would on this topic. But if it's not, I think the consequences are really um, hard to even imagine, which is essentially that you're requiring the president to have a deal with Mexico. So what if Mexico says no? What if Mexico says we'll only do it if you give us $10 billion, right? Once you order the president to do something that is uh, at the behest of another country, you're kind of going down a very difficult road. Professor, last question. I'm curious your thoughts on whether you see any correlation between the um, Supreme Court's recent decisions on two religious cases, right? Allowing more um, religion in public spaces like schools. Do you see any relation between those kind of cases and the cases that you're talking about, maybe the ones that are less friendly to, to immigrants? Well, I, I think if you look throughout our history, you know, it's Chinese exclusion, Japanese internment. Um, it's throughout our history that there's it's always a different group. Right. It's a different nationality. It's a different ethnicity. Um, but there's always some group that has to be othered. Um, in order to sort of make domestic policy seem friendly. Right. You have to say, OK, these are our enemies. And now, right now, it's Central America and Latin America. 10 or 15 years ago was the Middle East before that. You know, every, every time period has had somebody. And right now, it's, it's Central America, Latin America, and Mexico. That's, what the, that's our sort of enemy that we have to fight to kind of keep the eyes off of the destruction of kind of the things that are happening in our country, our infrastructure, our schools, everything else. Again, that's Professor Hamith Gundavaram of Northeastern University. Professor, thanks so much for the insight today. Thank you for having me. Time to move to the legal grab bag here on the Legal Face Off podcast on WGN Radio. Let's get to our two guests. We start with Natalie Rodriguez, assistant managing editor at Law 360 and co-host of The Term with Jimmy Hoover. Natalie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Along with Ross Souter, Senior VP of Litigation Solutions at Magna Legal Services, provider of end-to-end -end litigation support and legal services. Ross, thanks for stepping in today. Thank you. Thanks for having me as well. All right, Rich, let's start with something we've been talking about pretty much all podcasts long, the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. Yeah, I mean, we've covered this, uh, you know, today already with our guests, but, you know, just taking a different angle, Tina, um, it seems as though... As, as some have put it, especially in the minority, that the Supreme Court is now deciding cases based solely on who put them in that seat, which is obviously a disturbing trend, right? For, uh, traditionally, the Supreme Court was a bipartisan, um, actually nonpartisan body that would decide cases based on the law. It seems, unfortunately, now uh, these cases are really coming down on ideological lines. Yeah, I completely agree, Rich. Um especially when you look at it three-dimensionally, the Dobbs case, as well as the immigration cases we discussed and a number of others, 
Um, and what's interesting is that historically, I think, you know, each president, as they were, um, you know, teeing up certain justices to join the court as these openings came up, obviously there were political concerns and political thoughts that went through their minds as they were um, appointing justices. But now it's become a lot more acute, meaning that you know, when you look at the um, confirmation hearings um, and what each what several of these justices said about Roe, they completely, you know, did a 180 when it came to deciding Dobbs. But also they're just wearing much more, um, I guess, ideological principles on their sleeves as they're making these decisions. And I think when you look at who the conservative um, justices were like, you know, 10, 20 years ago, like the Rehnquist and the Scalia's of the world, it was a very different court back then. And even though they were conservative, they weren't nearly as conservative as a number of the justices today. Yeah, I think those are all excellent points. Natalie, this is your wheelhouse, of course, and uh, your excellent uh, podcast, The Term, has really taken a deep dive in analyzing Dobbs. And I want to ask you a couple of different perspectives on it. Number one, yes. do you think this is the beginning of the erosion of the right to privacy in so many other areas like contraception, like the right to same-sex marriage? Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? I think we're going to be seeing those battles, you know, in, in the near future. You know, um, by far the the majority opinion penned by Justice Alito and the concurrence penned by Justice Thomas certainly does open the door for those challenges. Um, and Justice Thomas is in particular, his concurrence um, basically put out a call for cases to revisit the the precedent the court has set in, you know, contraception, same-sex intimacy, same-sex marriage. Um, so yes, I do think we'll be seeing those challenges brought to the Supreme Supreme Court in the near future. Natalie, what does that say for precedence? I mean, what is what does precedent mean if it doesn't, you know, stand for the idea that a case uh, that stood the test of time for 50, you know, so years uh, is suddenly upended, uh, throwing the rights of, you know, almost half the population into question? What is the point of precedent going forward? And can we uh, rely on the cases decided by one Supreme Court as being reliable for future cases? Well, that's the question I think we're, you know, that the, the justices and, and are their legal communities going to be grappling with um, for in the next few years uh, and, in, you know, in the, in the foreseeable future. Um, obviously, in the dissent, uh, the, the more liberal justices uh, of the court, um, you know, put out a, a harsh call that, you know, this was a far departure from precedent um, and from established precedent, uh, you know, at the same token, on on the conservative side, the you know the, those just the more conservative side, those justices are you know saying that the Roe was wrongly decided in the first place, and that you know a wrongly decided case shouldn't stand, and that was you know their argument um, in the opinion. Um, I think this court has been, as you said, dealing with um, the the kind of hits to about their partisan, the, the view of partisanship among the bench. Um, and it's something that I think has just been increasing over the past few years and has obviously kind of reached a, a peak, so to say, with with Dobbs. Um, and alongside that, the court's been, you know, struggling with 
the the trust in in their legitimacy. Um, and there's been polls and you know surveys that 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 suggest you know further declining trust in the Supreme Court. Um, and I think you know this is something that the courts just continue to grapple with, and and that lawmakers are grappling with. We've seen you know. Um, We've seen hearings about the Supreme Court, which I would never seen, you know, in my in my years of coverage uh, before. Just just this past year, about the transparency of the Supreme Court um, and how they make their decisions. So it's it's something that obviously will continue to, I think, be a huge debate. Gotcha, Ross. Uh, you're an expert. Your company's an expert in, uh, you know, juries and how juries think and. Uh, what juries are really sort of considering when they're rendering decisions. The Supreme Court is not a jury, of course, but uh, how do you think juries would look at this decision and how do you think they sort of interpret uh, judges using their own political and ideological feelings to deal with an issue as precious as the right to privacy and one that's been as... um, protected as it has been over over all these years yeah i mean it's it's interesting because most lay people are not following court trends cases in general this you know dobbs is is one of the ones they know about obviously because this is what they hear about probably on the opposite side of the spectrum the only other case they may be super familiar with is the death versus herd case you know so this is where they get kind of their knowledge base outside of you know television shows um, but it's going to be interesting, really, to see how this impacts jurors. Obviously, people um, are going to have pretty strong opinions one way or the other, how they felt about Roe and, and, and whether that should or should not have been overturned. But interestingly enough, now it's going to come back to, I think, knowing about this, they're going to hear about precedents. They're going to hear about story uh, decisions, you know, all these other type of legal concepts that they probably weren't privy to before and now are they going to look at a case and go well i don't really care what was done before i'm going to look at it for what i want to do and what my agenda or if that's the right word what my viewpoint at the very least is going to be i will say generally the judge in a courtroom is probably the most likable person in the eyes of the jurors you know typically because they're there to somewhat protect them Right. They're there to be their conduit to the to the attorneys. You know, you don't really have a lot of direct interaction in in the sense of being able to really interact with them other than to tell your side of the story or your side of the case. Um, So generally, even when you ask jurors who is your favorite person in, in this litigation experience and they'll say the judge or whoever brings them their lunch, perhaps. But, you know, in the very least, you know, it's going to have, I would think, at least a subliminal impact on people and how they see the law and how they see, you know, do I need to, can I massage it a little bit? That's get, a really interesting, know? that's a really interesting take, Ross. I didn't think of it that way, but you're right. I think jurors who, you know, in any case, it could be, you know, a, a small case involving a dispute between two parties. I think you're right. One impact of this could be, do I have to, in that jury box, listen to even the instructions of the judge based on what prior case law would have me do if the highest court of the land decided, well, we don't really have to follow this precedent? I think that's a really interesting take. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out going forward as well and whether people bring this up. I mean, it's probably going to be a hot topic 
and we might see it in some of our focus groups and mock trial mm-hmm. deliberations. But in a year from now, is have they moved on to something else? Rich, let's move on to Stephen Colbert's show, because after arresting some of his employees, the talk show host says that police were just calmly doing their job. Yeah, I mean, interesting, you know, talking about uh, January 6th, as we've talked about repeatedly on this show, and it's, it's kind of, you know, timing wise that those hearings last week kind of got forgotten in the wake of uh, the Dobbs ruling. But um, yeah, Colbert staffers were filming a segment on Capitol Hill, uh, including notably one of my favorites, Triumph, the insult, insult dog. Um, and, uh, you know, they were there to tape a segment on, on, on the January 6th hearing and got arrested. And many in the conservative movement are pointing to this as an example of you know, liberal bias and media bias and hypocrisy, not only in the fact that it wasn't covered the same way the January 6th hearings are being covered, but that they were treated far more leniently and no criminal charges have been brought. Of course, Colbert came on the other night and said, please, these are two separate things, right? No one was killed. No one was, no, no property was defaced. Uh, I think he said this was a, uh, an act of, of puppetry, uh, you know, puppetry misdemeanor because triumph was involved. Um, so I certainly don't think you can correlate the two, but many on the conservative side are saying that why not prosecute Colbert the same way you did the insurrectionist Tina bit of a stretch, even for, uh, those on the right, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, you know, even trying to take as measured of a, an approach to this as possible at the end of the day, they were not trying to foment an insurrection or anything of that ilk with the puppet. I mean, this is a Conan throw a Conan throwback. And, you know, I think, you know, if you really want to start taking this, you know, to its logical conclusion or illogical conclusion to some, this is like a First Amendment type of a thing. I mean, the puppet has to talk. The puppet has to be good right here, too. But I mean, ultimately, I think that Colbert handled it the best way you can handle something like this. But I just remember seeing the headlines when this when the news broke about how what Colbert staffers were doing was somehow comparable to what was going on with the January 6th hearings and what folks in that context were being accused of. And I I just think it's really um, ridiculous personally. Ross, you love puppets. That's a well-established fact. You love Triumph as well. Uh, But... Who does? What are your, your thoughts? Maybe if Triumph was wearing the QAnon shaman outfit, maybe they would treat him a little harsher. But, you know, understandably, the Capitol Police are more uh, are stricter than ever, as they should be after the insurrection. And, you know, that resulted in uh, Colbert's people being arrested. So be it. Yeah. I mean, the 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 facts that I, I had heard them, they were in an area that they've been told not to go to. They say they were invited back, whatever. I think what ultimately Colbert did a nice job of is PR. Uh, and I think you could say that the way he handled that is probably uh, about as good as you can say, hey, we were there. Sorry, we didn't mean to be. We were invited there. But you know what? As you said, it's there's no correlation between the two. We took our medicine and, and you know, we listened to what we were told by the police. Um, so, they, you know, it, it, is it a story probably wanted to, to spin? No. But, uh, you know, Colbert's pretty much a comic genius, so he'll find a way to make it funny and uh, get some legs from it. Tino, let's move on to the musical artist Legal Matters, and we'll start with Megan Thee Stallion. 
Yes. So this is a fact pattern that many of our listeners will recognize from over the years of musical artists really not liking their labels much after the first few years of their career. And we're going to be talking about two entertainers this time. The first, Megan The Stallion, who's had a rather litigious history with her record label, 1501 Certified Entertainment. The litigation first started back in 2020 when she sued and got a restraining order against the label that was trying to prevent her releasing one of her albums. Um, The record label had said she wasn't authorized to release that album under her contract without their permission. And she claimed that the contract was onerous and too difficult for her to understand. So fast forward um, this February, Megan again sued 1501, this time over her latest album, Something for the Hotties, which she says should count towards the fulfillment of her obligation to the um, to her her label with regard to the number of albums that she needs to release. Um, 1501 claimed two months after the album was released that it did not abide by what the definition is of album under her contract and countersued her. So this latest um, litigation is um, really about what constitutes an album. Megan is clearly trying to get out of her contract and wants her latest album to count towards um, the obligations that she has to her record label. And it's a very sort of meticulous definition of what does and does not constitute an album. Um, in other news, um, her filed a lawsuit earlier this month in LA County against her record label, MBK Entertainment, which she actually signed with in 2011 when she was 14. Um, she finally released her debut album after many years, and that was on RCA Records. Hers trying to terminate um, her deal based on California Labor Code um, and its seven-year rule. Um, with the with the um, construing that law to mean that um, her contract only lasts seven years, and so it cannot be extended beyond 2019. She also claims under that employment law that um, her opportunities and her employment rights have been exploited during her career, and she's trying to get money back from her label. So, Rich, I mean, we've, as I mentioned before, seen a number of these cases over the years. I mean, these are two huge stars, and that's when you tend to see these cases, when people make it big and when every penny counts and when the terms that they've agreed to when they're really early in their career end up becoming uh, millions of dollars. I'd like you to pronounce, I'd like you to refer to me from now on as R period, I period, C period, H period. Because <laughs> that's how, that's how her spells her her name um and by the way megan the stallion just a couple nights ago in her she she talked about her home state of texas their abortion laws and she said she was embarrassed by uh their abortion laws she's from texas but yeah i mean you raise a good point you know it's like listen you sign a deal when you're a nobody and that deal uh disproportionately favors the record company and then when you hit it big you're looking to change the terms of that agreement Listen, deal with it. That's the way your first record deal is always going to be. And it's a pattern. You know, uh, Megan Thee Stallion is claiming that she didn't understand the contract. What? I mean, you had lawyers. She had people reading the contract, I'm sure. Um, you know, maybe the problem with her not understanding the contract is that she spells the, the. <laughs> that's problem number one. Let's come up with an agreeable use of that term. But listen, I just watched the Elvis movie over the weekend. Great movie. Spoiler alert. 
Tom Parker, Colonel Tom ripped off Elvis, right? I mean, a major story point in the film is that, you know, he had a 50-50 split with Elvis and he was he had nothing to do with, you know, writing the songs or even performing them and gave Elvis a bill at the end of his, you know, end of Tom uh, Elvis's career um, for eight million dollars that he owed Tom Parker. So it's a, it's a tale as, as old as time. Uh, record companies do good off your first album. Don't sign the contract if you don't like those terms. Uh, I find it hard to uh, accept a lawsuit that's retroactively looking to change the terms. Natalie, what are your what are your thoughts on these kind of contracts? Well, first, I agree with you. I think this is, you know, pretty standard that, you know, young music artists, you know, get kind of a rough deal or necessarily right with their first contracts. It's just kind of how the music industry is played. We're hearing about these lawsuits again because they've just made it so far. I will say um, with Megan the Stallion, uh, the my understanding is that first bout of litigation that she did over her contract, they actually settled that lawsuit in February um, and dismissed that case because they amended their contract. And I don't know the specifics about the amendment, so I'll just kind of state that first, right? And then two days later, she filed this lawsuit um, that kind of revived it. And I think here she's she's kind of actually trying to use the contract terms, you know, a, against the the label to a certain degree you know they're they're arguing that her um her album doesn't have enough original material where she's arguing that you know per the contract terms and again i haven't read the contract so i don't want to say you know this is correct or not you know the only term that defines what an album is is that it has to be 45 minutes long her album the one in question is 45 minutes and two seconds long yeah what i mean I don't know. Is a mixtape an album? Is an album? Is there even a thing about album these days? I don't know. Uh, Ross, listen, you deal with a lot of celebrity juries. You Magna puts together lots of mocks for celebrities. In fact, our mutual friend, uh, um, well, your expert, has uh, was a was a, uh, a commentator on Inside Edition throughout the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Uh, Rachel Colangelo. Um, so, what are your thoughts on how juries? look at celebrity lawsuits would they look at these two lawsuits and say you're a rich celebrity you've made a ton of money you signed a contract stop whining or would juries have sympathy to an artist who was taken advantage of especially a you know female african-american artist who historically uh they're not treated the same way that their male counterparts have been treated how do you think a jury would look at these cases Yeah, I mean, it's going to be an interesting thing. I think initially jurors will be excited that they're on the case because they'll be in close proximity to these superstars, right? Uh, And then they find out it's really a contract case, and they're like, oh, this is is a lot deeper than I thought it was going to be. You know, I'll date myself because, you know, this is what you hear about. I, I think about the Billy Joel, his contract, where he walked away from it and started playing bars again to get out from under his uh onerous contract that he signed earlier um you think about taylor swift the you know these i think they have somewhat of a familiarity and the hardcore fans are obviously going to have a big sympathy factor for the star thank britney spears and the free britney spears movement you know so there's they probably do have a little bit of a leg up um and i think that's what we would do during voir is really make sure somebody wasn't a closeted Megan the Stallion fan, uh, and you know, would just come in with their own agenda. 
uh, and doesn't like the big corporation or think they're going to take advantage. You know, the other case, uh, which I think you probably talk about uh, more separately, I found it interesting that she signed as a minor, uh, which was an interesting fact in, in the way I think juries would look at that and, and kind of more. You know, Megan seems like she was older when she probably signed it versus someone who was a child. And people tend to want to protect children. This is a segue I've been more proud of than most. Hang on, let me brace myself. <laughs> let me brace myself for a Joe segue. I got to put my neck brace on. <laughs> go, Joe. Let's go. Tina, let's get to a cold case. Dairy Queen. Wow. Dairy, oh, Dairy Queen loses its lawsuit over the Blizzard naming rights. Yes. So do you think that using the name Blizzard in connection with bottled spring water is likely to be confused with Dairy Queen's Blizzard ice cream products? Well, regardless of what anybody... If only we had an intellectual property attorney to turn... Oh, wait. So you know Martini. Yeah. This is right <laughs> up my alley. So for those of you listeners who think there is a likelihood of confusion, unfortunately, your opinion doesn't matter because the federal judge in St. Paul, Minnesota, didn't think so. Dairy Queen's Blizzard mark, which everybody knows, goes back 76 years and Dairy Queen owns five federal trademarks for this brand. Um, the defendant in this case, W.B. Mason, which is an office products distributor, owns two trademarks for Blizzard for copy paper. Um, nevertheless, notwithstanding these differences, Dairy Queen argued that while W.B. Mason is not a direct competitor, consumers may nevertheless be confused by W.B. Mason selling bottled water under the Blizzard brand because some of the Dairy Queen restaurants sell bottled water. Earlier this month, the Minnesota court held for the defendant claiming that there was insufficient evidence that consumers were confused into believing that there was an association um, between the two and that there was also insufficient evidence of actual confusion or an intent to confuse. Um, the judge also pointed, and this is, again, another important factor in this kind of analysis, to the 11 years of coexistence without any reported instances of confusion. Speaking as a trademark lawyer, this decision seems to follow um, what we call the likelihood of confusion analysis. Um, there are a number of factors that are looked at when a court is trying to consider and determine whether there's a likelihood of confusion between two trademarks. Um, the landscape, meaning the extent to which there are other blizzard marks beyond these two, is another important factor in addition to the ones that I just mentioned. So... I don't think this is necessarily going to impact any sales for Dairy Queen, especially as we're in the heart of the summer season, Rich. But how important, I mean, it's interesting, because how important do you think it is for Dairy Queen to just make the effort, right? I mean, these, these are global brands that have been around for years and years that are worth billions and billions of dollars. Even if they occasionally lose a case, how important, Tina, is it for them to just go after it? For to to spread the word to others that maybe we lost in this case, but that we're going to put you through the ringer legally and it's going to cost you a lot of money. And maybe the next person who wants to use Blizzard in a similar context is dissuaded from doing so. Well, that's a great question, Rich. And I mean, I work with many companies that are everywhere from startups to Fortune 50 companies and those that sort of give me the directive to be very aggressive in enforcing their rights. It's very important, especially when you're dealing with brands that are famous um, you, when you're the owner of a famous brand, um, there is a 
you know, body of law that applies to famous brands called dilution, where the analysis is a little bit different. It isn't so much about whether one brand causes a likelihood of confusion with another, but like Cadillac, for example, is a great example of where, um, given how distinctive that is, um, the ability to enforce that brand beyond cars, it, it, it's just a different analysis. It then becomes um, an analysis about whether you're whittling away the distinctiveness of the brand or somehow you're tarnishing the reputation of the brand. And not all brands are able to do that. But if you've got a brand that's worth that kind of money, and I work with some clients that have that kind of brand um, strength, it's really important to be aggressive. Yeah, it's a great point. Natalie, what are your thoughts? I mean, you think the average consumer, you think this is just, you know, a legal argument that's really splitting hairs. You really think the average consumer would confuse a Dairy Queen Blizzard, which is a, you know, frozen, delicious ice cream product. This segment is not, not brought to you by Blizzard or Dairy Queen, unfortunately, but we're open to suggestions. And bottled water from a whole other company, do you think that the average, you know, layperson is actually making that, is confusing those? Uh, or do you think this is really just a, you know, legal argument? So this is my personal opinion, but I'm going to say no. I like, no, <laughs> I, you know, I, as a consumer, I don't think I'm going to be confused that, you know, a blizzard labeled water bottle is the same as coming from Dairy Queen. Um, and as you mentioned, like a yummy frozen treat, um, you know, and I think as Christina mentioned, you know, it's these brands, both of them have been kind of living together for 11 years and there's been zero instances of confusion that Dairy Queen could point to um, in terms of, you know, you know, someone being confused as it being a Dairy Queen product. So I think, you know, obviously that did not help their case. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I, what Christina said, I, I think is right, though, you know, you, you, a lot of these companies and these trademarks are worth so much. You just have to pursue the litigation in, 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 in lots of cases. After covering Megan V. Stallion, we get to another important story about the probably most popular article in the history of the English language. Uh, the Ohio State University is starting to use the word the as part of their merchandise now, Tina. But it's funny, but wait a second. You say you pronounce it the. Is it the Ohio or not? State. Yeah. <laughs> but, no, they pronounce it the when it's used in this context, even though it's spelled T H E. But Megan the Stallion doesn't say the. Oh, it's very confusing. True, true. Well, the rule is you're only supposed to say it as the when the following word starts with a vowel or the letter sounds like a vowel, like the honor roll. So in this case, the Ohio State University is how it's said. If you say the Ohio State University, it, it it's not proper. Wow, who who awoke? Oh, yeah, gra grammar geek Joe Brand after. After 50 episodes, Joe comes alive on the grammar front. Hey, don't get me wow. started on these, on yours, on theirs. I, I'm very particular about all those. Wow, I get, I get a, uh, I get a break because I'm Canadian. It's all, it's the op. Whatever you say, is the opposite in my home country. <laughs> yeah, you and George Costanza. So, but at least the Ohio State, the Ohio State University knows Thank how you. to spell the word the. So last week, the Ohio State University successfully registered the word the, or the, if you prefer, for various merchandise. And anyone who knows any Buckeyes knows better than to leave off the word the when referring to the Ohio State University. 
um, that dramatic pause lends itself to a highly profitable merchandising campaign for the school, which makes the university at least $12.5 million each year. And as we just discussed, whether you're a school or, you know, just a normal company, you have to be pretty aggressive in protecting your brands, especially when a lot of money is at stake. So in this instance, um, their scope of protection, especially for a word that is as ubiquitous as the, um, is very narrow and really is most likely to for the purposes of addressing issues such as counterfeit merchandising. Um, trademarks cannot prevent others from using words for their dictionary meaning. So in this instance, for example, OSU can't stop somebody from using the word the um, for the dictionary meaning, like as part of a sentence. So it's probably going to be a pretty narrow scope of protection. Um, what's also interesting is that OSU reached a coexistence agreement with Mark Jacobs last year. Apparently, Mark Jacobs was also on the bandwagon of trying to trademark the word V. Um, and under the terms reached, OSU's use and registration is limited to T-shirts and hats um, that are really in the context of sports and collegiate. So um, in any event, a very interesting case about a word that I don't think anybody really thought someone would want to trademark rich. Yeah. And, and, and Ross, now you see school, I mean, on Monday Night Football for the last many years, or maybe it's Sunday, now it's Sunday Night Football when they do the player intros and, you know, they, the players now use the V before any school, almost as a, as a ripoff, almost as a joke, you know, it's, and they even extend it to high school, you know, the Wesleyan High School of Northern Maryland, they'll, they'll put the V before so does that detract from the brand? I wonder. I mean, what was that playing? I, I, I'm glad Tina explained the whole thing to me because after I heard about this, I was just, a, you know, picturing T-shirts and hats that just said V on them or the, uh, and they trademarked that somehow. And it actually blew my mind a little bit that we could pick any ubiquitous word and trademark. And I'm going to start grabbing a whole bunch of these now and uh, and see if I can get trademarks. So, uh, you know, it, it's. It's probably good that this was uh, a judge rendered verdict rather than a jury rendered verdict. Well, it's actually a trademark office rendered verdict. <laughs> oh, they're even even better. It's a bureaucracy, so it's better than if they left it up to the jurors who probably would have been like, "Okay, the the." I mean, how do you trademark that? Natalie, what's your take on on, on the lawsuit involved here? Well, so just. To follow up, I actually, I, I looked back at this case in some of our past code, original all 316. I think actually we had some some photography that like some of their apparel for the Ohio State University is just the letter the. Like that seems to be like a big rallying cry for them. Um, I find this case uh, personally a bit amusing because I actually went to a high school where like the inside joke and like the Queens area that I live in and grew up in, um, you know, we were known as the Mary Lewis Academy. I know now that that, that is not grammatically correct. So thank you, Joe, because I did not know that. Uh, but that was like a big thing. And that's how we were known, like the Mary Lewis Academy. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I think it's, um, you know, really interesting case, really fun case. Um, but like Christina mentioned, like I'm, interested to see what exactly the scope of protection is like how they kind of like 
narrow this down um, in terms of how the the Ohio State University can use it um, and how Mark Jacobs can use it. And I'm sure we'll see probably some other companies uh, pop up and, and try to do something similar. The Joe Brand, what are your thoughts? Well, no, I, I would be the Joe Brand. Um, it's, it's also a filler word in broadcasting. When people aren't sure what to say, let's move on to the next topic. Uh, and actually, well, if, if we're going to do that, indeed, Rich, this is actually kind of a gross story. Uh, someone strategically placing a video camera inside a bathroom during a children's graduation party. Well, not just someone, but for the purposes of a legal face-off, a lawyer, right? That's why we're covering it. So uh, we're ending off with a couple of bad lawyer stories. In California, uh, a, a lawyer was arrested last week in uh, Marin County, faces charges of misdemeanor electronic peeping. Uh, his bail was set at $15,000. According to the complaint, uh, on June 15th, he placed a GoPro camera in the cat litter box that had been placed in the bathroom at uh, a graduation party for a 17-year-old student. It was recording for 30 minutes before being discovered. Um, and they also have footage of this attorney, Charles Coral. Uh, recording himself putting the camera in the litter box. And we talk about dumb crimes and then making it dumber by filming yourself doing the crime, right? Um, kind of hard to relate to, but uh, Tina, we've covered many stories of lawyers doing dumb things. Uh, this is a, a, a bad example, not great. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one? Well, I mean, you have to ask yourself why this person did this and whether they're of sound mind. You know, sometimes people just have very strange predilections, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not sort of with it. But the reason why I mention that is because I don't know if this person, depending on what's going on with them, is fit to practice law. I mean, he's got an ethical obligation to his clients that there has to be a certain level of fitness to do the job in order to ensure that you are zealously representing your clients and, com and complying with ethics obligations. And so whatever made this person, you know, do this, what is the underlying issue there? Because I'm not so sure this person should have a license at the end of the day. Yeah. Good point. Uh, Ross, Natalie, I mean, I don't know what, not much to say on behalf of, uh, of this guy, but yeah, obviously, to Tina's point makes lawyers look bad in general and uh, questions his ability to practice law. Yeah, yeah no, it, sorry. Yeah, I, no, I, I agree. And, you know, I think this this man, I believe, is in California. Um, so I don't actually know the specifics, but I know in a lot of states, you know, getting arrested will automatically get you like a notification to the state bar or the state Supreme Court, um, you know, to have your licensure evaluated essentially um and in some cases depending this was a misdemeanor i believe so i don't know uh, but in some cases if you're arrested it's almost automatic um then you get essentially suspended from license yeah i mean i, I feel like in, until he's convicted i always i you know you ever watch the news and they're always like the alleged culprit you know i'll, I'll caveat with that start but i agree with 100 percent with what everybody said i mean it's it's nothing you can say anything good about. I mean, it just, you know, it's creepy, icky, however you want to describe it. It's not, 
a good thing. And unfortunately, it probably will end up as more lawyer jokes somehow. We'll all pay for it. Well, let's finish off with another ridiculous story regarding an attorney. And this one comes from the state of Ohio being suspended after driving. Well, I guess Rich will call it, call it quite comfortably. Yeah, uh, he was uh, he was naked. Let's just get right to it. This lawyer, a uh, 50 year old attorney who had received his law license in 1997. Uh, he was also the prosecutor for the city of Hamilton an assistant a county prosecutor, and he was arrested uh, for driving while naked. Uh, and, and and what's more disturbing, and, and you know, I guess to Tina's earlier point, probably not someone who uh, is maybe all there, right, in mentally, but not the first time. He had been arrested five separate times in the last four or five years. Uh, in one, one occasion, 2006, uh, the city fired him, understandably, you know, probably not something that you could go back to. Um, and then subsequent times after that, he was driving new during uh, several traffic stops. Uh, he was charged with additional three additional counts of public indecency. Uh, he was also caught uh, masturbating during two of these incidents. He pled guilty to all the charges, uh, admitted to a similar incidents, incidents of public indecency. Uh, thankfully, he started a program for compulsive sexual behavior disorder. Um, he also sees a psychiatrist for bipolar disorder. Um, I looked up, you know, exhibitionism. That's something that is a, uh, a diagnosable disorder. It seems like that would be among the several diagnoses he's probably, uh, you know, uh, several conditions he's probably undergoing. But uh, again, not a great look for lawyers, Tina, this and the, the kitty litter peeper. Yeah, I mean, this just goes back to the point I made um, about the kitty litter peeper, which is that I'm not sure this person's fit to practice law. And I think that this is just a more egregious case. I mean, this is a case that over a series of years and multiple incidents and acknowledgement that he has a problem and knowing that he has other disorders that he is currently or has historically received treatment for ultimately beyond whether, you know, he's in jail or not in jail or fined or not fined the question that I think is important to address is whether he's fit to practice law and to represent clients. And I'm not in any position to evaluate that, but just based on the accounts that I've read, I'm not so sure that he's able to represent clients as zealously as he's required to by the ethics rules. Yeah. I mean, being clothed is probably in there somewhere. I would imagine. Uh, An uh, impulse Ross, control, right? Yeah. Ross, uh, if you're like me, I've seen some weird things on the highway, uh, you know, driving next to me. But uh, the naked, naked lawyer is not not a great look. Yeah, multiple times being caught as well. So I mean, it, it's when when's enough enough? So I guess finally, what is this the fifth or sixth time they they finally said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna make it stop. Uh, so yeah, I, I agree with everything that was was said. Bad look for lawyers. Um, surprised in this one as well, as, as Nata was talking about earlier, that this is only a misdemeanor as well, which I feel like was uh, was was probably not enough in this respect. Yeah, maybe not a uh, 
a not a handcuffable expense for uh, or, or uh, a handcuffable offense for obvious reasons. But let's end on a, on a brighter note. We've talked about some music today. We like to go around the horn and learn a little bit about our, our guests. We talked about Megan the Stallion and and her and Elvis. But we talk about our favorite uh, our favorite musical biopics. I saw Elvis over the weekend. Great film, great performance by a relatively unknown actor named Austin Butler. I thought it was amazing. I thought Tom Hanks' choice of accent was a little uh, off-putting, but uh, really good uh, good biopic. My favorite musical biopic of all time is, of course, the immortal Spinal Tap. Um, Smell the Glove is one of my favorite albums. Let's go around the room and talk about our favorite musical biopics. Uh, I know I'm putting on the spot. Not a lot of prep for this. Tina, what's your favorite uh, film depiction of a... Uh, of a, of a musician. Spinal Tap is amazing. It's definitely my favorite. It's classic. It's taken already. Tina, I'll ask you again. Yeah. What's your favorite depiction <laughs> of a of a musical act on film? You can't make me change my you can't make wow. me change my pick. Okay. Just because Nat- you want to have the same pick. Natalie, do you have a favorite uh, movie that depicts a musician or 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 group? I'm so sorry. I really don't. I'm trying to think of the name of a Broadway show that like involved like a 19, like I want to say 50s or 40s group. And like, I remember that, enjoying that. Um, Jersey Boys. Jersey Boys. Yes. Jersey Boys was really good. I, I do like Jersey Boys. Biggest is from Ross. Jersey Boys is amazing. Not a bad yes. film. Either. The, the Broadway show is probably a little bit better than the Clint Eastwood film, but a really good film. Joe Brand, you're a younger member of our uh, of our panel here. What's your favorite yeah, movie depicting a, a musician? Well, you threw me for a loop when you said Spinal Tap, because isn't that a mockumentary? I didn't know. Ah, that. that's true. I didn't know yeah. that fall under biopic. <laughs> In that case, I pick Walk the Line if we're not. Uh, yeah, there you, there you go. Because yeah. <laughs> um, I, I was going to go with uh, Across the Universe, uh, a pretty good movie about the Beatles. But uh, after you threw out. Spinal Tap, I think I'll have to go with my first musical I've ever saw, We Sing in Sillyville, which, you know, is a big part of my childhood. So we'll go with that. Okay. Uh, Ross, do you have a favor? You know, I, I was thinking long and hard. I thought you threw me with the with the Spinal Tap, too, because it is such a great movie, <laughs> really. But I would go with Joe in that the mockumentary. Um, how about, like, I really liked uh, Eight Mile. Oh, Eight Mile is a great, Eight Mile is a great one. Yeah. Yeah. Some of my other favorites uh, include the movie Bohemian Rhapsody was pretty good. Rocket Man. Rocket Man was great. I love uh, I love the Gary Busey uh, version of, uh, of Buddy Holly back in the day. That was before Busey went all Busey on us. And that's not a good thing. <laughs> Very good. Good choices all around, Joe. Yeah, hopefully more Gary Busey talk in a couple of weeks. That's going to do it for Legal Grab Bag here on the Legal Faceoff podcast. Big thanks to our guests today on Legal Grab Bag, Natalie Rodriguez of Law 360 and co-host of The Term, along with Ross Suter of Magna Legal Services and all of our earlier guests on today's show. Another big thanks to our producers, Yvonne Barbosa, Joey Christopoulos and Ben Anderson. For our co-hosts, Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Faceoff podcast. And please give us five stars as well. For Tina and Rich, I'm Joe Brand. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks on Legal Faceoff. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.